Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Happy Friday, folks. Happy Friday. Um, welcome to David Blanchett and Michael Fink. Uh, Rodrigo, since you're such an expert at the disclaimer, why don't you go ahead? Oh, that's right, the disclaimer. Um, uh, we are going to be talking about things that we that you shouldn't take. As you talk to your financial advisor, talk to a professional, and these scallywags that are just here to talk for informational purposes. With that, why don't we uh, get everybody introduced? Yeah, you need to work on that, dude. <laughs> <laughs> listen, listen, Philbrick, Philbrick will go on for five minutes. That's as much as we need. We're good. Just don't do anything stupid. Yeah. How about that? I'll tell you, that's going to yeah, be the next fair. time you ask me for a disclaimer. I'm just going to say that. All right. Sounds good. Okay. So maybe um, David and Michael, maybe David, you start out if you don't mind. Just give a little bit of background on your career trajectory. And then Michael, maybe when David's done, just introduce yourself. Uh, sure. So real quick, I'm David Blanchett. I'm the head of retirement research at um, PGM. It's a asset manager owned by Prudential. I've uh, been at PGM for about three months now. Uh, previous to that, I was at Morningstar for about a decade. Um, I research topics about retirements and hope to help people build strategies to implement. So that's kind of a hot take on me. Michael? And you've been doing that for basically your, your entire time at Morningstar. That was kind of your focus as well, right? Yeah, I mean, and I, I, before that, I was at a company here. I live in uh, Kentucky, uh, doing that for about a decade as well. So I've, I, I used to be a financial advisor. People way back, so I've been uh, I've been in the game for um, a long time. Awesome, Michael. Uh, I 
see. Let's. I, I am at the American College of Financial Services right now. I used to be at Texas Tech University. I have a background in both economics and finance. I used to be in applied economics and actually moved over into finance mid-career. Uh, main interest is in personal finance type topics and really been doing research and retirement income planning over the last decade or so. Fantastic. Yeah. So the theme today is obviously retirement planning. Um, and we're going to be discussing the current state uh, of the union in terms of um, maybe capital market expectations and what that implies about probability of success for different types of retirement approaches. And um, we also want to get into some of the more novel products that have uh, become available, um, not in the U.S. yet, um, but there's a specific one in Canada that we want to dig into, the um, Purpose Longevity Fund that I know, Michael, you and David have been spending some time recently really digging into. Um, so maybe I've actually read um, both David, you and Michael have, have had articles in the last several months about um, you know the, the current state for capital market expectations, whether we should um, or, or how we should modify the safe withdrawal rate assumptions. Um, techniques for overcoming some of the low interest rate, high valuation issues that investors face. Um, maybe, David, I don't know if you want to start, but like, how, how do you sort of see the retirement landscape right now in terms of what what investors should expect maybe from capital markets and implications for um, traditional types of retirement planning? Sure. So, you know, when it comes to doing any kind of forecast, Michael is a huge fan of historical long-term averages. I just can't seem to get him <laughs> off of just using that 5% bond yield in projections. I don't know what it is. Um, but I think, I think if you kind of, if you, if you survey kind of any professional asset manager that does any kind of reasonable projection, either it's like super depressing or just moderately depressing. Right? I think that, that it's really important when, when helping someone determine, you know, how much they have to save, how much they can spend, that you use realistic expectations. And, you know, expectations today are a lot lower than they have been historically. And, you know, that means lots of things. I mean, I think that, that it's, it's really important for folks who are retiring right now. Um, there's obviously a lot more uncertainty for individuals who are further from retirement. But I think, like, the first thing is making sure you're using realistic assumptions in any kind of projection. But on top of that, I mean, by definition, if returns are lower, you have to, you know, work longer, save more, spend less, or change your strategies. And, like, one thing that we can obviously talk about today is, is the role of guaranteed income. I know that um, a lot of folks don't like to use the A word annuity, we can just call them call it guaranteed income. But I do think that that now more than ever, it's worth thinking about, because it's gonna be really, really hard to get a portfolio to generate income for say, you know, 30 plus years, if you've got yields that are 2% or less. So you know, I, I, go ahead, go ahead, Michael. I, yeah, love it. I, you know, I just want to say, like, it's important at the very start to say, how depressing things are right now. And I know that David and I are very often buzzkills when it comes to discussions about what kind of a lifestyle you can actually lead in retirement. But let's just think about the 4% rule. What does the 4% rule mean? It means that historically investors could have from a balanced portfolio withdrawn 4% of the initial balance, increasing by the rate of inflation every year over some sort of a fixed horizon, say like 30 years. Um, First of all, that 30-year time horizon is not realistic anymore for most healthy couples. So we've seen this in improvement in longevity, especially among higher-income Americans. And I think this is something that a lot of people don't realize. The likelihood that of, let's say, a 
well-educated boomer couple, couple that's around the same age. They're 65 years old right now. They've got somewhere between maybe a 45 and 50% chance that one of them is actually going to live beyond the age of 95. So that original conceptualization of what was a safe retirement length is now blown out of the water because you're going to have a lot of these people actually living beyond that. Uh, and then when you think about what sort of a safe income, if you followed that 4% rule, what sort of a safe income could you derive from a safe bond portfolio? We can look at, say, the TIPS yield curve, and we can withdraw that $40,000 of spending and then maintain that every year from a million-dollar portfolio. And at today's yield curve, we're going to run out of money, say, age 86, 87, instead of age 95, by following the 4% rule, investing in the safest kind of bond assets, which means that if you're going to make it beyond the age of 95, you've got to get you've got to get an equity risk premium. And there, you know, if you look at the expectations of equity risk premiums right now, you can nobody knows what it is, but you can come up with a reasonable estimate based on valuations. And we can argue about how predictable the 10 year Cape is. It's been pretty predictable recently. And we're looking at, I mean, if you look at a capital market expectations of BlackRock or JP Morgan, we're looking at maybe five or 6% nominal equity returns, maybe 3% real, you know, and I think that's maybe being a little bit over optimistic. You're relying on much higher than 3% real returns, real equity risk premium in order to generate that. But not only that, you have to get it at the beginning of retirement when it matters the most, because you can get an equity risk premium over the course of a 30 year retirement. But if you get it too late, you're going to be out of money. So it's, you know, it's depressing. And I don't think a lot of people understand how depressing reality is right now, because we have this sort of soft, comfortable cocoon of historical asset returns that people plug into their Monte Carlo simulators. And they come up with these very unrealistic estimates of a safe withdrawal rate from an investment portfolio. And then they look at some of these products that are built using financial assets that are priced today. And they say, well, those products are too expensive. But that's reality. That's that's companies that actually have to go out there in the market and build financial products with bond-like assets that are very expensive right now. They're not going to deliver the same kind of income that you could historically obtain from an investment portfolio when you had a very good reliable equity risk premium and real bond returns, which you don't have anymore. You know, you, you may be surprised to learn that you're actually some of the more optimistic guests we've had on in the, in the, in the last few weeks. We had Steve really Keen on a couple of weeks ago and, and um, he's calling for the end of capitalism in the next 10 years. So low equity risk premium is, is actually relatively on the optimistic side of the spectrum. Before we get into, um, um, you know, how to think about expectations. I'd like to to dig into how you guys think about modeling retirement risk and longevity risk and how your thinking in that domain has evolved over time. I mean, you mentioned the 4% rule, which I think goes back to Bengen and, and Bengen obviously just, you know, did, did a rolling um, uh, analysis of what you could have withdrawn ex post from an equity portfolio going back to whatever it was at the time, 1900 or 1926, or and then determined that if you sort of just rolled it forward over time, that at no over no horizon, 
Um, did you run out of money over a 30-year period with a 4% withdrawal rate historically, right? But obviously, we've evolved in terms of how we think about the modeling of um, sustainability and the probability of, um, uh, you know, the prob- probability distribution for safe withdrawal rates. Maybe one of you can sort of walk through what best practices are um, right now in that space. Well, I mean, so, you know, first off, I think like the Bingen analysis was was great. I think it was, it's been a great starting point for planners, households, whoever. Um, I think that uh, uh, there's often a disconnect, though, between the tools that advisors use for clients and the tools that Michael and I can use for research purposes, right? So, you know, like Bingen used the probability of success. I mean, that was a, that was a, a good metric. 25 plus years ago, but it's not necessarily a very good metric today, right? There's, you know, notable shortcomings. It's, it's binary. Either you succeed or you don't, or you fail. Um, it doesn't capture magnitude of failure. So, I mean, I think that, 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 you know, we've had a lot of kind of research and guidance along the way, but when I think about best practices, you know, one, you've got to use realistic capital market assumptions, right? Um, and then that kind of cuts both ways. I mean, you know, I think that we can all agree that returns are going to be lower than they have been historically for the next 10 years. I think there's a lot of ambiguity what happens after that. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of saying you've got to use kind of near term, you know, lower expectations, then maybe something different longer term. Now, you can think that we're trapped in a low interest rate environment forever. But, you know, like when I when we talk to advisors about, you know, like using returns, I think that you need to have, you know, returns that match your horizon. So if you've got a 50 year investment horizon, you know, the first 10 years should be low, the last 40 years could be higher. You've got to balance that out. You've got to, you know, incorporate things like fees and everything else. And then, you know, it's about, you know, incorporating all the different nuances in terms of guaranteed income, what it means on outcomes. And so there isn't necessarily an easy answer for me with to the question because the stuff that I do for research is not the same kind of stuff that a lot of advisors do when they're um, giving clients advice. And, and that's an important disconnect that I don't see getting bridged anytime soon. Why yeah. not? The other, the other thing that I, I think we struggle with a lot is that the historical data, if you're using rolling periods, equities have been incredibly reliably mean reverting. And we, we struggle with whether or not to make equity returns IID or mean reverting. And if we make them mean reverting, then... Well, well IID, that's a fancy word. What does that mean? That means that tomorrow's return has no... Or today's return has no impact on tomorrow's return. And historically, what's happened with U.S. equities is... They, you know, they, you hear this thing that a lot of advisors say, which is you've just got to wait it out. That in the long run, equities are always going to outperform safer investments. That's hugely controversial in the economic community. Uh, it's happened in the United States. It's happened internationally, but there's no guarantee that that's going to happen. And in fact, that shouldn't happen because that would get, that would create these opportunities for market timing. Uh, if it is that reliable, then you should be basing your equity allocation based on valuations right now. You should be taking advantage of that. Uh, and when we run these simulations, if we incorporate mean reversion, in some cases, things don't look that bad. Because if you have a bad period, you're going to have a good period coming up in the future. And that happens relatively reliably. But if that mean reversion goes away, then a lot of these simulations that ended up with positive conclusions 
wouldn't end up with positive conclusions. If you have a 20 year period of underperformance in equities, then you, I mean, obviously that's going to have a big impact on the sustainability of a retirement income portfolio. It's not built into the historical returns because they are mean reverting, but who knows what's going to happen in the future? I mean, in order for markets to be mean reverting, you really have to have a pretty sizable element of traders that are behavioral and there's no guarantee that's going to happen in the future. Yeah, the mean reversion process too is so lengthy. I I remember going back to sort of 2010-ish and doing running a comprehensive CAPE analysis using a wide variety of different metrics, the Q ratio, the the Schiller CAPE smooth to a variety of different um, smoothing horizons from five years to 20 years, um, market cap to GDP, a wide variety of different metrics. And it my observation was that on average, the sort of mean reverting periodicity is on is on the order of kind of 15 to 20 years. If I recall, it was, I don't know, 17 years to be absurdly precise, right? But um, if, I mean, I, and I go back to, I remember reading a, a study by Michael Kitsis um, about a decade ago where he demonstrated that uh, 85% of the explanatory power of the success rate is a function of the returns you get in the first 15 years of retirement, right? Just the, the sequence of returns dynamic is such that I think as you were um, suggesting earlier, that if if you if you get really bad returns early on, you can't make up for that later, right? Um, so if you've got this really long horizon mean reversion and that mean reversion process the periodicity is actually longer than the period in which the returns matter most, then just how useful is it to add some sort of autoregressive mean reverting uh, term to the simulation? So, I mean, maybe to, I mean, maybe I'll, I'll disagree with Mike. I'm, I'm not that worried about the autocorrelation stuff because relatively few advisors are going to use the pure historical time series for projections. Normally what they do is, is they're going to feed in, you know, it's going to be, it is going to assume that they, it is IED where you just put in a historical long-term average and standard deviation. So in that context, there isn't necessarily an applied or autocorrelation in most projections today, at least from my perspective. Which already puts, you know, the, the estimate of what you do at a disadvantage, right? So if you have mean reversion and you plug it in, you're going to get a better outcome. So right. are I mean, you so, taking a more conservative approach, right? By not doing well, that, I mean, so like, assume DD? You are. I mean, so like if you're using historical long-term averages in the sequence that they occurred, you're, you're, you're implicitly assuming, one, that bond yields are around 5%. They're not, right? And then you're also assuming that there's that equities become effectively less risky over longer time horizons. They don't, right? And so I think that, you know, we've moved away from that, right? So you don't typically use historical returns in the sequence that they occurred, and I, I'd, I'd like to think that more advisors are using capital market assumptions or return estimates in a model versus pure historical, but it, it's hard. It's hard to gauge that. I don't, I, you know, I don't have a, a strong pulse on the on the assumptions that use or they're using plans today. So I actually want to go back to what you made, where you said you're using a certain level of tool that uh, allow you a better job for the end investor, and there's a big disconnect between what you're able to use and what the advisor is using. Number one, mm-hmm. what is what are they generally using? Uh, on average, and why is there that disconnect? Well, so I mean, they're using. They're, I mean, I mean, it's Michael, and it's like our job to like write code and 
build fancy models and test stuff. That's not that's not what a advisor should be doing. Like, Sounds dreamy. Not, what's that? Sounds dreamy, man. I know it is, right? I love it. Uh, <laughs> but it's not. It's not what an advisor don't even get it started. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not their technical competency. So they're going to rely upon a tool that's created by someone else that is generalized, right? So you know, there's only so many assumptions you can make available in a model. And you know, I don't know that they're going to even know to care about certain things. Well, you know, like how much time do they want to spend? You know, thinking about capital market assumptions. In theory, there's there's what I would call smart seeds. The base assumptions of the model are realistic ones, but you know, advisors like to get in there and attack. I mean, I think that the one thing that that is important, regardless, is again kind of going back to the outcomes metric. You know, I think that you know the vast majority of Monte Carlo plans are going to use success rates or some variant as the outcomes metric. And that can be like incredibly unreliable. Like you can just get the wrong answer flat out because it doesn't think about outcomes the way that an economist would be like utility, where you're quantifying preferences and capturing the distribution and all that. And so I think that you know like there is this need for simplicity, right? I mean, you have to have the advisor understand it, the advisor can get the client to understand it. But I think that there's, there's there, are, there are different places that we can go as an industry to kind of help advisors, you know, have better models that results in better advice. I remember being. Um an advisor many years ago, and there was a, a planner, an expert planner at um, our firm, and he had very sophisticated models, and we spent a lot of time discussing them. And um, it turns out that he tried to um, encourage the advisors to use the robust, comprehensive reports that came out of his more sophisticated modeling um, procedure. And what, what ended up happening is the advisors all rejected those reports because they were competing for business against other advisors who were using simple reports with linear expectations, right? So you've got sort of other advisors who are delivering a client an 80 page booklet with 60 pages of, uh, pro forma expected cash flows, um, based on linear expectations out 50, 60 years. And the numbers look really good, right? Because they're not accounting for, for, for the stochastic nature of the process. Clients don't understand it. And in the end, clients want good news. And so if you've got a, an advisor who's got a robust plan, but the news is more challenging versus another advisor who's got a simple plan and the news is more encouraging, Nine out of ten times, or some, you know, vast majority of times, the client will choose to go with the advisor with a simple plan that, that has good news, right? So this is a this is a major obstacle. Do you have any thoughts on how advisors can overcome this in order to both be successful at winning business and do a prudent uh, job for their clients? You know, I'm on some of these retirement discussion boards on Facebook, which I, I would recommend to anybody because it is so entertaining. There are constant discussions about how to choose a financial advisor. And there are discussions where people will go to visit with a few different financial advisors. And one will say, well, you should expect somewhere between eight to 10% return on your portfolio. And another one will say, well, no, actually it's more like five to six these days. And everybody says, well, go to the one that says eight because that's better. Uh, you know, hey, I'm going to get them 10. I'm going to get them 12. <laughs> you know, you laugh, but I, I, a quick anecdote. So I, Mike and I, my business partner Mike and I attended a um, an institutional workshop. And one of the presenters was the CIO of the largest 
municipal endowment in Canada, about $200 million endowment. And she presented a use case of where they had, had re-engineered their investment policy and had gone out with an RFP to nine different institutions uh, for proposals on an, on an investment portfolio to meet very specific objectives, which was, um, I think, f- achieving 5% real um, on, on their portfolio. And so they went out, they sourced um, managers at, by using the connections of their board members. So problem number one, but that's primarily how they sourced managers for the proposals. They got nine proposals back. Eight of the proposals came back and said, um, we cannot as fiduciaries um, give you a portfolio that we think can reliably produce 5% real over your investment horizon. One came back and said, okay, yep, here's a portfolio that'll produce 5% real. Guess what they did? Right? So it's not unique to retail, right? Like even sophisticated institutional CIOs um, make exactly the same mistakes, right? Like people want to hear the news that they want to hear. And, 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 you know, in the end, they're going to work with people that give them news they want to hear. So that is a a very good challenge. Meb Faber does this um, survey every year, or maybe he highlights a survey where they ask what institutions believe the different sleeves of their portfolio are likely to do. And because a lot of these institutions are actively managing the equity, actively managing the bonds, actively choosing their hedge fund managers, I mean, the returns, I think, on the hedge funds is consistently expected to be 15% or more, right? So it, it, that hubris of, yes, yes, everybody else is going to receive 4% or left 2.5% on a balanced portfolio, but my team is going to be able to produce 8% annualized is, I think, the big issue with capital market assumptions. Maybe not everybody's using it, but a, a large proportion are. Right? That's, a, that's, another, that's kind, of, kind of the biggest input issue behind this whole retirement plan. Yeah, I mean, if you use more optimistic assumptions, you're going to produce a more palatable plan, right? And if you're competing on the basis of whether or not you can do a good job for somebody um, as an advisor, it makes it very difficult for many, even sophisticated um, clients to be able to tell the difference between somebody who's making prudent assumptions and delivering a practical, realistic plan, and some he's using optimistic assumptions with, you know, a, a linear modeling process, and delivering just absurdly optimistic assumptions, right? And um, I don't know, maybe that's an insurmountable problem. Any thoughts? Well, there's talk I mean, about that. The thoughts on how to fix that. If you had you were the god of retirement and could force advisors to do a certain thing, what would you have them do, or you? I mean, there's clearly a disincentive in this instance to doing what I think we would all agree is the right thing, right? To use more realistic assumptions. And I think, you know, one way to confront that would be to have like a uniform set of assumptions that everyone has to use in a financial plan. Now, that would be impossible to get agreed upon. But I think that, you know, collectively, you know, unless you did something like that, I don't know how you would force advisors to not want to use that 12% annual arithmetic average return in their financial plan because it sure makes that outcome look great, doesn't it? You know, I think we should also mention that this this hasn't historically come back to bite advisors who have been over optimistic. Very fair point. So yeah. 
but I think it's going to happen. Uh, that you know, we're, we're right now in the very beginning of the pure defined contribution era, where all these boomers who are sitting on a ton of assets right now are they they have an inflated expectation of how much income they can withdraw from those assets, but a lot of them don't. Thankfully, for financial advisors, thankfully, they can tell them they can withdraw this amount of money every year, but they don't do it. They just sit on it, which it works out for everybody because the advisor gets to manage more assets. The the client doesn't run out. I mean, they're afraid of spending anything because they could run out, uh, you know, but they don't like spending down their corpus. And so in a very low interest rate environment when you've got 60 percent of your investment say in bonds and then you've got equities that are maybe flat in order to maintain the same lifestyle that you had before retirement you're gonna have to start spending money out of that portfolio and the question becomes are they actually confident enough that they're willing to spend down their portfolio to see that nest egg get smaller which i think is going to have to happen over the next decade people are gonna have to be comfortable with that idea but historically they haven't done it uh, I think in many cases, it's it's the middle class that actually spends down their assets. But a lot of people who are sitting on a ton of money, they don't run out in retirement. Um, so and that's a, that's a bit of a mystery. And I, I think that um, that has saved a lot of financial advisors who perhaps have been over optimistic uh, because the people don't act. Their clients don't actually follow some of that over optimistic advice. Now, if they did and they started running out of money, would that be a liability risk? That's that's an interesting question to ask. Yeah, so so point. it seems to me that the biggest pain point or thing you point out is proper capital market assumptions. But if I go way back to when I started in the business, everybody did a, a lot of advisors used a spreadsheet, linear assumptions in terms of the expected rate of return, you know, 7% every single year, no volatility, you die at 87. And so this is how much you need to spend on the early basis. Now, I heard you say Monte Carlo a few times. So I'm imagining that from, from those days, We've moved into some sort of, you know, stochastic approach where you're taking into account different uh, um, distributions around, I imagine, returns. Uh, I imagine uh, inflation. I imagine lifespan. Like, what is being put into these models that advisors are using that may or may not be more robust in the spreadsheet example? I give? So it's not necessarily right. And so this is um, one of my favorite things I've ever seen is I... I I'm tempted to name the company, but I'm not going to. Is I, I have an account with them, and um, they have a tool Vanguard. On, online where you can do a 100,000 Monte Carlo simulation. I was like, oh, my God, that is awesome. 100,000 total overkill, but I'm loving the size of that, okay? But it uses pure historical long-term averages. So I'm just like, this is garbage. This is like It's like a, a huge number of runs. But it's absolute garbage, right? What's so the output? Yeah. What was the output in that? Monte Carlo is the success what is rate, the output? and so it tells you like how the odds of you accomplishing a goal, right? So I mean, it's I, it's you know, like we call it a stochastic model of Monte Carlo. It's only usually one random input, right? We only usually assume it's a, I mean, re- returns or inflation. That's usually it, right? I think that in reality, to be truly stochastic, there's lots of other random things that can happen, like when you retire, when you die, um, how much you spend, do you have a health shock? That is real life, right? Somehow implying that, that a Monte Carlo simulation for your life is just random returns doesn't even nearly do justice to the possible kind of array of outcomes that are out there. But that's what they're showing. So to your point, you know what? I'd rather you do a 100,000 run using historical long-term averages or a pure deterministic 3% forecast. I'll pick that 
I'd pick the three percent. And so it, it gives this kind of it gives you the capability of running a better plan, but still it's still garbage in, garbage out. You can you could run a million Monte Carlo runs and, and still have a bad output. Now, David, talk a little bit about why failure rate is such a one-dimensional outcome for these stochastic analyses, because it's really do you make it do you make that lifestyle to a specific age or don't you? But there is no information about what happens if you fail to make it to a certain age. And there's no information about what happens if you live beyond that pre-specified age and outlive your savings at that point. So there is no nuance to what, how bad that outcome could be. Well, so, I mean, to be fair, right? So you're talking about estimating success and failure rates using a point estimate across like life expectancy. So I'm going to pick age 95 and estimate if I succeeded or failed based upon that. You could actually do success rates and overlay mortality. You could say, I'm only going to assume that I failed if I'm still alive and I'm broke. Okay, so no one does that, but you could, right? But even then, I think the larger issue is it totally ignores that magnitude of failure. Like, so let's just say that I'm, that I, you know, like want income for 30 years and in the 29th year, or the 30th year, I fall a dollar short. Like, okay, like in your, like, in your 100,000 run, Monte Carlo simulation, you failed, but you really didn't, right? There's no kind of perspective on the magnitude. And that's really important because almost all retirees have some form of guaranteed income, right? So like Bingen's analysis, you know, like it assumes like, oh my God, if you fail, like it's the end of the world, that's nuts, right? In reality, a lot of people can afford to take back and take significant haircuts because they have lots of guaranteed income. They don't need the money as much. And so like, that's why, you know, like Michael and I have redone, you know, like the Bingen analysis using, you know, like, uh, more forward-looking return estimates, and we would say, well, if you re, if you replicate Bengen's assumptions, three percent ish or less is the new four percent. But I still think that four percent is fine. Five percent could be fine based upon the amount of guaranteed income you have and you're able to cut back. But we figure that out using utility models and different approaches versus that kind of very basic idea of what do you need to have a good success rate. Okay, so walk us through that. That, that was literally going to be my. Yeah, this is going to be my next my next question. It's my, in my garage, I got like a hammer and a saw, and I just I, <laughs> so the utility is how. What's that? Was that, was that a good joke? Was that like a dad joke? I'm, I'm not sure where that goes. In the <laughs> it was um, a total. I love that sound. I'll, I'll be doing those all day. Um, so utility is just how economists quantify preferences, right? So like the example that 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 I always give is, let's say I could flip a coin, and you get a a fifty percent raise, you get a fifty percent pay cut, right? On average, you make the same amount of money, but no one would take that 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 gamble because you know bad things hurt us more than good things, right? And so the goal with utility is to kind of look across the outcomes and quantify each of them and then aggregate them together, right? As opposed to just saying like, did you accomplish your goal? It's like, well, like how much did you accomplish it? If you don't accomplish it, how does that make you feel? And it provides a better perspective on like what is the true outcome versus again just like a success rate metric. But that's like a I think you're you're describing at least the way you're describing it is like a multi-objective um, optimization, right? So you've got some sort of Pareto frontier where you've got the um, maybe the net present value of all distributions, you've got the probability of success, you've got the um, expected terminal value of, of wealth. Um, like how, how do you how do you bring those together as a as a single sort of utility objective in order to like because I mean I'm, I'm sort of thinking about it from the ground up 
the the problem is what portfolio can I assemble today given my capital market assumptions to maximize my utility um, in retirement, right? Which is a multi-dimensional problem. So how, how do you guys from a, from a, and by the way, our audience tends to skew kind of technical. So, so feel free to, to dive in here to whatever extent you like, but, but how do you, how do you, account for all of these different the, 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 these different dimensions of these objectives so i mean it's it's not easy right i mean you know there's there, you know usually when you use these utility functions you're focused on consumption how much you can spend but you can aggregate you know the quest and consumption but i mean really it's just you think about you have a, a monte carlo forecast you have you know an income amount every year Right, and you have a number of runs, and so then you just say, "Hey, well, you can you can aggregate that income based upon its volatility um, and things like that." So, I mean, it's it's I would say it's complex, but it's not. It's really just saying, "How do you feel about each of these outcomes and pulling it all together?" Right now, then a uh, key then is are all the levers you have that is going to affect your utility. So, like you know, I can have a more aggressive portfolio, more conservative portfolio. I can spend more. I can spend less. There's a, there's a variety of you know trade offs or levers you have to kind of figure out. What is kind of that truly like best approach when it comes to each person? You know, Adam, I think that recently the way David and I have been trying to conceptualize this is to simplify it as much as possible and ask if you're going to spend the same amount of money every year in retirement, what combination of investments and products is going to allow you to spend the most optimally every year? So then we run a utility maximization and we say, if you chose this approach, then how much could you spend every year in retirement optimally? If you chose this approach, how much could you spend optimally? To me, that provides a much clearer outcome and it actually matches the observed data of how people actually spend money. When they know, for example, that they have a greater base of guaranteed income, they tend to spend more in retirement. One of the reasons that they spend more is because the outcome of running out of money is not as bad. So when David talks about utility, incorporating utility, just for example, let's say that you got a longevity annuity. You bought an annuity that kicks in at the age of 80 or age 85. Now, Would that be a QLAC, Michael? Well, let's, I don't even want to get started on my, <laughs> my, my love affair with the QLAC. Uh, but just as an example, so, I mean, we can start thinking about what this utility analysis means. When we hit age 85, we're going to get an income of, say, $20,000 a year on top of Social Security, which is already inflation adjusted. And if we run out of money and then at the age of 93, the outcome's not that bad. We've actually got a pretty soft landing. We have a safety net. Now, if you did not buy the QLAC, you then would have to live on Social Security. It would be a much harder landing. So optimally, what that means is you can spend more every year between now and whenever you run out of money, you can live better because you've got a safety net. And we can incorporate a lot of different types of product designs to estimate what is the design that's going to allow you to optimally spend the most using that utility function as the objective. So when you say what, what allows you to spend the most, you mean subject to a minimum probability of success or something. No, 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 no probability of success. So, okay, so hold on. So then what do you mean by by a, a optimal spending rate then? Like how, define that for me if there's no probability of success constraint. So what you're doing is you're, you're first of all, you're assuming that you're going to have a fixed rate of spending up to the point where you run out and then you're going to have 
you're going to have to spend less. You don't have to do that. You can actually you don't model have to do that, it. But that simplifies it. it. Um, and then you can look at different product approaches. You can incorporate a utility function, which tries to account for the amount of unhappiness that you would experience if you went from spending $60,000 a year down to $25,000 of social security. And you can choose a spending level that is going to provide you with the greatest amount of lifetime happiness with different types of combinations of investments and say risk protection products. And that'll give you a much clearer idea of what's going to allow you to optimally spend more. So, so let me give so, an example. So let me real quick. So, so the unit of utility is, is utils. Isn't this fun? Um, so let's just say like you have like two possible outcomes. You have, I get $20,000 a year and I get one util for that. But if I get, um, like $30,000 a year, I get, I get 1.2 utils for that, okay, whatever it is. Okay. So then you, you run a projection, you have one of the two and you pick the one that maximizes the average, right? So what you say is, well, I want to get $30,000 a year because I get more utility for that. But if I get down to 20, I get really upset. So you test different combinations, right? Of maybe a product or a portfolio that determines the maximum of those two. So it's effectively a trade-off, right? You want to get the $30,000 a year, but the, the the benefit of that isn't as great as if you have that if, if you go down to twenty thousand a dollar. So the key is, is is kind of quantifying that combination by averaging out all the different possibilities. But there okay, is so, there's no success rate though. Okay, so I mean, is it it ends up being the same basic utility frame as like a mean variance optimization? But essentially, you're using the IRR of cash flows divided by the standard error of the IRR of cash flows and then sort of maximizing that objective? Well, so there's lots of ways you can do it, right? I mean, so when you think about it, it's it's what is the, you know, like at the end of the day, it's, it's when bad things happen, how much do you penalize that? So like, you know, like downside deviation, you square it, right? Su- super easy way to do the math, right? Well, like, what if you what if you cubed it, or what if you quinted it? You know, like, oh, wow. So you're dealing with with highly nonlinear, like utility functions. You can, you can, you. I have, we have, we have, I have kinked utility functions. There's, you can, but like, you know, but think of it like, you know, so you could have a, a sliding scale where if you're just a little bit under, the exponent is is one. If you're really under, it's like five. Then you got to pull it all back together, right? So it, it's it's focused usually more on the on the cash flows. What is the amount? You then aggregate back together using a hot. There's different ways you can do it. And, and I like that. Tiles. But then, how do you how do you quantify the the end client's true utility function? Right. Yeah. Like, I mean, obviously, we can we can construct a utility function in whatever shape we want. But mm-hmm. but how do we map it to to clients' true utility functions? Well, I mean, so like you know, like let's say that the, the client's goal is to have is to have income for life. Okay. And their, and their question is, well, like how much can I spend? I have this portfolio. Okay. So, you know, we have to make assumptions about, you know, like one really important assumption is, is, is how flexible are you in terms of retirement spending? If you've got a shortfall, how does that make you feel? Right. And so then, you know, given information like that, for example, you can run the analysis and say, oh, okay, well, if you have a shortfall, you know, what, what is that exponent for your unhappiness? And then given how, how they, what would you say your exponent for unhappiness of a shortfall below a certain <laughs> threshold? That's, that's a very personal question, actually. <laughs> um, but, but, but so like a, a good point about that is like is the role of guaranteed income, right? Because the more of that you have, right, the less that you're going to be affected by bad things happen. 
For and sure. So like for that, sure. That, that's what you're doing with that kind of analysis. You're saying, okay, given, for example, your risk aversion for a bad outcome, this is what you should do. So if you tell me, you know, I, I'm kind of okay with cutting back, we're going to tell you that you can spend more. But you can use you can use these models and these methods to kind of quantify things in a way that makes a lot better than kind of the the, the success based approach. And I guess Adam, the easy answer to that is we're we're just using the same relative risk aversion as we use during the accumulation stage. So if you can elicit relative risk aversion from a client before retirement you can theoretically then apply the same level of risk aversion after retirement. But risk aversion in essence means a different thing. It mm -hmm. means your willingness to accept variation in your lifestyle in retirement. Mm -hmm. That's the retirement definition of risk aversion, but it is the same concept. So really we're talking like a, a, the guaranteed income side of it is crucial here unless, unless there is someone out there that is happy to get um, what, 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 do you, what do you get in the U.S. for a guaranteed income from the government? Social Security. That's Social Security, right? So that is, the, that is the, the base level of what anybody might want if they don't want to buy extra guaranteed income. Correct. And then there's a shortfall between, okay, I want to spend this much, and then if something bad happens, you go straight down to, to the $10,000 a year. How good are you with that? If they're good, then you should spend that amount. It's, so it's a simple heuristic. You know, like, kind of does it require a lot of modeling and a lot of fancy modeling for this or is it you, you want to get most of the way there ask someone ask them much money how much you need in retirement and then cover that with, with guaranteed income right i mean because that's actually what you're proxy right you know like if you, sure. if you say oh you know I, you know i only need forty thousand dollars a year what are you getting from guaranteed income oh i'm getting 45 you're probably fine right but if someone you know the issue really becomes for wealthier households who get less and less of their income from you know social security that have a, a growing gap where they say, oh, you know, I really need $100,000 a year, they're only getting $30,000 from Social Security, then there's a huge possibility there for the, for, the, for the negative outcome, which is not covering that kind of minimum level of consumption that you're talking about. Okay. Right. Okay. So you mentioned earlier that annuities may... may oh, are we going to talk about it? I mean, should we like... I mean, what do you do when you when say may, annuity, right? May, may, may close this gap, right? So let's gotta, go there, right? So... I'm actually really keen to have this conversation because, I, I, first of all, I want you, if you don't mind, to describe the difference between an individual buying a tips ladder and an individual buying an annuity and why an annuity is almost always preferable. Michael loves to talk about this. He's got these slides with these lines and bars. Go, Michael, go. <laughs> Well, I mean, okay, so I think a better way to do this is to think about your kid having a birthday party. And you, you go to Costco and you buy one of those giant birthday cakes. And your wife tells you that there's going to be somewhere between 15 and 40 kids showing up to eat the birthday cake. And they're going to come one at a time and you have to serve them a piece of cake one at a time. So what do you do? You, you, if you give each one of those kids one, they're going to think you're a cheapskate. They're going to be unhappy. But if you start giving each one of those kids a big fat piece of cake and then, you know, the 25th kid walks through the front door and you got nothing left. Kid number 25 through 40 are going to be really unhappy. That is such a great way to describe yeah, longevity so risk. <laughs> Okay, Wait, cool. That's perfect. Okay. <laughs> but I mean, the idea is, 
All right, if your wife could have said, there's going to be 25 kids coming, would you have been better off? Yes, because you would have known exactly how big to make each one of those pieces. Now, if you don't know, one of two things are going to happen. You're going to either make those slices too small, and then you're going to end up with half of the cake and nobody to eat it, and everybody's unhappy. Or you cut off too much, and the kids start coming in, and they've got no cake. So there's always a loss if you fail to annuitize. And that's why since the 1960s, we've Unless known, you guess correctly. Unless you get correct, guess correctly, which you know, even if you guess correctly, the optimal slice is too small because you have to accept the possibility that you may not have guessed correctly. So the optimal slice <laughs> is too small if you fail to annuitize. Okay, hold on. You okay? I love this. I love this analogy, but I do think it it behooves you to to draw a direct connection to how this applies to annuities oh, and longevity. Here it risk. comes. Come here, on. Here it comes. All right. Here so, so let's say you're a 65 year old female who's in good health. And by the way, let's only look at the mortality table of people who actually look like our clients. Do not look at the social security mortality table because that's yep. irrelevant for most clients and financial advisors. So you got a healthy 65 year old female client, high earner. She has about a 50% chance of living to the age of 90. So it, with the, let's say 60% of your portfolio is in bonds. With that bond portfolio, do you slice it up in equal parts? Is that ladder gonna last you to the age of 90? No, because there's a 50% chance she's going to live longer than the age of 90. So do you slice it up to 95? Well, there's still a 26.7% chance she's going to live beyond the age of 95. Do you slice it up so it lasts till age 100? Well, she's still got a 9% chance she's going to live beyond the age of 100. So you either have the cake sliced up all the way to age 100, at which point she's probably spending about 30, 30% less each year. And she still has to accept the possibility that she's going to run out. She still has a 9% failure rate. So when you fail to annuitize, not only do you have to accept the risk of running out of money, but optimally, you're going to spend less each year because you're going to build that ladder up to some age where the likelihood of failure is relatively low. And that's what's known as mortality credits. The difference between the, the size of the slice, the amount of money that you're going to spend each year, if you build it to age 100, versus if you buy an annuity, which is essentially like buying a ladder up to your expected longevity. David and I have done a lot of research on the pricing of income annuities. And man, they are frighteningly price competitive. I mean, if you mm -hmm. look at a, if you look at a, a you know a bond ladder, like a treasury ladder, and you look at the cost of building a treasury ladder to the a, the average longevity of a healthy American, you're actually getting a little bit of alpha on top of mm -hmm. that. Plus, you're getting the mortality credits because they're, they're building in expectations of their general account portfolio of bonds. It's actually bigger, that's higher than treasuries right now. So you're getting a credit risk premium and you're getting that mortality premium that you get from annuitizing. It is so a no brainer that it's not even a contest my, when it comes my, to maximizing utility. Can you say that part again? I'm sorry. So that extra credit comes from what? For the annuity structure. So, so your the the insurance company when they build it. If you think about what it what they're taking into account when they price the annuity, 
they're looking at the probability that people are going to be alive to a given age. And then they're essentially multiplying that probability buying by the present value of buying a zero to that age. So you, you can then estimate the present value of all those mortality weighted payments. And if you do that, you find that it's essentially the same as building a bond ladder up to the expected longevity, maybe even minus a year or two if you're using treasuries. So what's happening is the insurance company are assuming a credit risk premium and they're giving it to you for free, which is nuts. I mean, it is crazy, but that's what's happening in today's annuity market. They're assuming that they're going to get a credit risk premium and they're taking all that risk and bearing it themselves. And you're getting the benefit of insurance on top of a guaranteed credit risk premium. But Michael, there's no such thing as a free cake. Well, I mean, there is a possibility that these insurance companies could go out of business if they promise a credit risk premium and they fail. Well, that's it. That's what I, that's the first red flag there, right? They're, they're well, doing, and, the, and they're doing is, a dumb thing and we should take advantage <laughs> of it, assuming that, you know, they're, they're going to get bailed out when the shit hits the fan. You know, and, and this is obvious, I think, to those of us who are trained in finance, that you this is a free lunch and it should not exist, yet it does. Now, the argument is that there are these state guarantee associations that serve as a backstop. But when you talk about a systemic risk, the risk of failing to achieve a credit risk premium is probably going to occur to a large number of insurers at the same time. Now, I'm not so worried about a lot of the highly rated insurance companies. What I think is concerning to David and I is that increasingly what's happening is companies are coming into the insurance space and they're leveraging up the risk of some of these portfolios. They're providing higher and higher credit risk premiums that are guaranteed, but the downside then falls on the rest of the industry. So that's optimal from their perspective. And you as a consumer, especially if you're investing in short-term insurance type products, then that can seem appealing. But, you know, investing in something that's guaranteeing a payment 30 or 35 years down the road doesn't sound quite as. So the the hubris of excess returns (laughs) is insidious. It even exists within the insurance companies. It's not just advisors (laughs) or institutions. So so just so could I could I just I want to make sure that I I can use this analogy appropriately about the cake. Okay, so you have a cake, you have it's going to be 15 to 40 people. um, And the and the the baker says to you here, you can have this cake. Oh, and by the way, if you run out of slices, I can probably give you one slice at a time, but it's going to be very, very thin after you run out of that cake, right? So that's your guarantee. The baker is there on call with the slices that he's going to give you after you run out of the original cake is going to be very, very tiny. Ah, I, so, that, so, so, so then is, the, the, what, the so mother who's got the party, because, so the mother that has the party says, I'm going to guesstimate between 15, 30, 45. I'm going to guess that there's 30 people and I'm going to slice up 30 slices. She gets it so wrong, runs so out of cake, and then analogy. goes to the baker to get smaller slices. That's the insurance. That's the um, the guarantee. That account, is right. So, so okay. essentially, now where it gets really interesting is, let's say you buy a deferred income annuity, and it kicks in at the age of eighty or eighty-five, but you have an investment portfolio of stocks and bonds that you know, if you get a big risk premium, you're going to be more than fine. That deferred annuity kicks in at age eighty-five. And it's, it's like you've had the party, you know, only 15 kids came, you've got lots of cake left over, and then someone comes by with a new cake. You don't need it. Wouldn't a perfect type of annuity be one that only kicks in if you run out of cake? So then you have an agreement with the baker 
all right, I, I'll, I'll pay you a little more for the cake, but if too many people show up, you've got to come with a new cake and then start serving from that one. That's what's known as a contingent deferred annuity. And that is really the most efficient form of annuitization. It's one that only springs if you absolutely need it. Uh, and then we're talking you can spend significantly more because you're not wasting money on deferred income annuities that you don't actually need. So how does that work? Yeah. Like what are the, what are the specific, what's the specific conditions of the contract for a, a contingent deferred annuity? Like how, how do you, how, how do you, how does it kick in? I mean, it, it, they exist today. That, that's what a, a GLWB is, right? You have a, you have a variable annuity at an insurance company and you're paying a 1% fee where if, if that goes to zero, then you start getting a, a paycheck for life. Okay. okay, is that is that the structure that Michael you were proposing, or because I kind of got the sense that you were able to sort of have this this pool of assets that you're managing personally, maybe you're whatever allocating it to, to a balanced portfolio or stocks or whatever, and you've also got this contingent deferred annuity that if your wealth falls below a certain level or something like that, then this annuity kicks in and makes up the difference. But I I could have been missed perceiving that. No, you got it exactly. Now, if I'm the insurance company, do I want to manage the portfolio or do I want to let you manage the portfolio however you want? What is the optimal way for me to manage my portfolio if I know that the insurance company is going to step in if I run out? Well, the yeah, I mean, obviously, maybe, yeah, you're, exactly. you're definitely maximizing yeah. that risk. So if you want to yeah. maximize the value of that contract, you're going to take as much risk as possible. So it may be more efficient for the insurance company than to at least have some control over the investment portfolio. And then what they'll do is they, and this is a big issue, I think, with a lot of the way, or the ways that some of these products are characterized. So you're paying, say, 1% per year to provide that protection if your portfolio runs out. That's not a fee. So if you go to some of these, I hate annuities kind of, you know, documents, what you'll see is that 1% will be portrayed as a fee. It is not a fee. It's what you're paying for the cost of insurance. And if you're managing those assets and charging AUM and you're charging the same amount of money, but you're not providing that guarantee, then you're not providing anywhere near the amount of value that that guarantee provides. So that money then is, uh, it's it's invested, but it's also used to buy options. So credit swaps or uh, some put options to protect that portfolio so that the insurance company will do really well if the portfolio, the investment portfolio sinks so that it can have enough money then to provide that guarantee because it is going to occur to a lot of annuitants at the exact same time. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, how, how it gets managed differs, but I think that that in the past, what we've seen is that these structures have existed solely inside annuities. I think the, the point that Michael's making, you guys are alluding to, is I think we're going to see more of these wrappers on regular portfolios, right? You're going to kind of move beyond that that annuity chassis, and you're going to be able to see these types of strategies that are more easily to deploy on an advisor's book of business, right? Okay, so okay. I mean, that's a natural segue a for great, us to, yeah. to lean into... Um, this new product that I know you guys have been evaluating and, and we've been getting a lot of inquiries as, about as well, this um, longevity fund, right? This purpose longevity fund 
which is some combination of an annuity, a taunting, and like a balanced portfolio. Um, but you know, maybe one of you guys uh, try to describe what's going on here, maybe characterize it, and the role it might play in portfolios, the relative pros and cons. Um, what are you guys thinking about this now? What is this? I'll, and, and I'll, I'll go, and then we'll just let Michael correct me when I get a few things wrong. Um, <laughs> So, I, I, you know, it's, it's effectively a, a, a tontine, right? And so a tontine is a word that describes a different type of risk pooling, right? So when it comes to annuities, traditionally, you know, you, you, there is some possibility for individuals taking on market risk. There's immediate variable annuities, not a whole lot of those out there. There are these variable annuities. But at the end of the day, the insurance company is still kind of backing up. This is how things are going to go. Right. There's this, there's an emerging. I mean, these, these were around hundreds of years ago where there's effectively more more sharing involved. Right. There is not only sharing of the investment risk, but there's also sharing of the mortality assumptions. And so you're going from an environment where, you know, if you buy like an immediate annuity, a fixed immediate annuity, you, you get guaranteed income for life from the insurance. company. OK, if the insurance company gets it wrong, they're on the hook. Right. If people live a lot longer, then they're in trouble. And in these structures, these tontine-like environments, you're, you're, you're sharing the risks of this pool. And so everyone in that risk lives longer than expected. Your payment goes down. If the investments do better, they go up. But I, I perceive it as a, you know, it, it requires more flexibility on behalf of the individual because there's less certainty in terms of the amount of the income. But it's far more efficient because, you know, there, you don't have to have the of the same kind of reserving requirements you do for traditional annuities is just based upon the outcome of that pool. So can I just ask, you said that you're able to pool both longevity risk and the portfolio risk. I don't, I don't see how, maybe explain to me why they're also spreading out the portfolio risk. Well, it's, 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 it's uh, the group suffers the gains and losses together, right? So if, if I'm thinking about the outcome from the individual investor's perspective, right? So if the portfolio doesn't achieve you know, whatever the, you know, whatever the returns are, if it's negative, your income goes down. So I'm looking at this from the perspective of, of if I'm buying this product, what is going to affect my income amount? Okay, if I buy a single premium immediate annuity, I, I'm, I'm in theory locked in for life, ignoring the whole like insurance point up thing. In this type of environment, my, my income is affected both by the market environment as well as the mortality experience of that pool. Right. So okay. a lot so you're more things it against... Up. Right, you're comparing okay. against the annuity in terms of the investment. I was thinking about managing your own portfolio versus same portfolio. Right. You can do it yourself, or you can pull it. The only thing you're getting from the tontine structure is the pooling of longevity risk. If you are, if your other yeah, only I mean, option is to do a, a, a similar sixty forty. Pool. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking of more more long. I'm comparing them against like the the really the traditional yeah, yeah, immediate yeah. annuity versus a, a, a regular portfolio. <clears throat> so okay. maybe flesh out what the potential advantages. I mean, I hear you say we're pooling mortality risk or we're pooling longevity risk, but maybe flesh that out, what that means in practical terms. Um, and, you know, what are what are the potential downsides of, of um, owning one of these structures? Well, before you do that, can we start with making sure that we create how the cash flows work and what happens when somebody dies uh, to the like what they get back, yeah, what they idea. don't get back. And then we can talk about the pros and cons. So, I mean, I think it's first of all important to say that this whole concept um, 
exists already and has existed for 70 years. So Robert Greenaw created the first variable annuity as exactly this type of structure for TIA-CREF. And what it does is it invests in a portfolio of stocks and bonds, and they estimate how long the pool is going to live, and then they adjust the amount of income they get every year. And the advantage of the variable annuity is the is, is the equity risk premium component. That's the really the only <clears throat> advantage over a con- conventional participating income annuity. So with the participating income annuity, which exists also among mutuals, you can vary a dividend every year depending on the performance of the bond portfolio versus expectations and the performance of mortality versus expectations, which I like a lot. I mean, even though it's risk sharing between the individual and the institution, I like it because it if the institution gets it wrong, then they're not going to go out of business. Um, so that that aspect, I think, is, is appealing. Now, with the variable annuity, they're investing in, in, in a portfolio. It's only going to provide a higher income than in a traditional income annuity if you get a, a equity risk premium. If you don't get an equity risk premium, it can be worse. Now, when you start incorporating things like liquidity or access, now with a with a TIA craft product, it is irre- irrevocable. So, I mean, it is, you are buying into an income and the objective of that savings should be income and retirement, which is the way the 401k system should work. Like the government is paying $150 billion per year to subsidize this system. And it's not paying that money so that you can pass the money on to your kids. It's paying that money so that you can live better in retirement. And you can either choose to live the same every year and get a fixed income annuity, or you can vary it every year by capturing some some equity risk premium as part of a variable income annuity. And that product, I mean, there's historical performance of that product. It's performed really well, pretty much exactly as would have been expected. The original design was was really motivated by the desire to make sure that that income keeps pace with inflation over time. Obviously, equities don't correlate perfectly with inflation, but generally speaking, historically, at least in the United States, it's been able to achieve that purpose. Now, you can have additional designs that would provide, for example, access to a certain amount of liquidity, but if you do that, that's going to have a negative impact on the amount of income that you can draw from it every year. So the not perfect income product. Not necessarily. All right, let, let's hear this. Well, it, 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 if it increases the pool of individuals interested in buying the product, right? So, like, I mean, to your point, the question earlier about, like, you know, individuals don't like life-only products. And so if you look at the mortality experience in different products, the, the optimal product is not necessarily life only if, if individuals don't purchase it. So the, I, the goal should be to, to, to add individuals to whatever product you have to make it more representative of the U.S. population. Like a, a problem with, with these new products that are created is if only like, like insanely healthy folks buy them, that's not a good pool to be a part of. Right. 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 Yeah. Because if you look at the distribution uh, mortality distribution. What what you hope is to get that that uh, population distribution, because what's happening is up until age eighty seven, fifty percent of that population will die and therefore leave the money for the ones that are going to live longer. If the distribution skews to the to the right, then you know you're not getting that extra assets that'll help the longevity of the uh, of the other side of the population. So you, so what you want is more AUM per people, assuming everybody wants the same income, in my little example. You want it to be as large as possible 
with a varied distribution of, uh, of health outcomes so that you can get as close as possible to something normally. Well, there's diminishing marginal utility. Like once you get a sufficiently representative population, then adding extra people is, you know, of zero marginal benefit, right? So I take your point, David, but it's like, it's not, okay, maybe, but I mean, if most of the costs are fixed costs and- It is a big deal because like Michael's first love, Diaz, there's, there's huge issues there with who buys them versus general population. So like, I get it. Right. That yes, like in theory, once you get really big, but a lot of the products people, you know, that they that they love aren't necessarily working as well as they could because individuals that buy them are disproportionately healthy. And so it negatively affects the pool. Right. Okay. Fair enough. Keep going, Michael. Sorry. No, I, I had so you know, that actually once told me that the only people who are buying longevity annuities are college professors and actuaries and engineers. And that's not a very attractive mortality pool. And this is also an interesting aspect of different types of insurance products because they actually become more attractive to the insurer if you get a pool of less sophisticated buyers. So in other words, the TIA CREF variable annuity may just be a bunch of college professors who like the idea of an annuity that's not a very attractive pool. But if you're going to sell annuities you know, to the steak dinner crowd, that might be a more attractive pool of annuitants. And the insurance company might actually benefit from that. And you as an individual might actually, okay. and this is where it starts getting really weird, because there are insurance products where they are less efficient from the economic aspect. You know, From the way they're designed, they're less efficient. But they actually pay more money if you are a sophisticated person that buys an inefficient product, in some cases you can get a higher income than if you buy an efficient product because they, they're based on, first of all, a mortality pool that is not as healthy. And second of all, on a group of buyers who are not necessarily sophisticated enough to use that insurance product optimally. I just realized what company I'm gonna launch immediately. You scout out the mortality pool of every single insurance company and Tontin structure and make sure that you're maximizing that. And is anybody doing that? I don't know is that it, you know it what it is, right? I mean, I don't know how that gets reported, but. Okay, so let's know. let's carry on with, with, so, so <laughs> <laughs> we had Didn't to go to crypto at least once. Yeah. Um, so let's let's keep on the, the topic of exactly how this this specific product works, right? So a, um, an investor, a retiree, or a pre-retiree purchases this fund. There's different classes of fund, right? Depending on your age, and then we can call them vintages, yeah, yeah, so different vintages. So, so walk us through that, right? So you choose your vintage, and then why is that important? And what are some of the restrictions on your capital once you decide to invest? Because um, there is there is liquidity, but there's there's penalties. So maybe if you guys are, are sufficiently familiar with it, maybe walk us through what that looks like. So, I mean, I, I am, but I, I don't want to describe someone else's product incorrectly. So um, I, I, I have a, uh, I was able to talk to someone there a few days ago, but I'm, I'm worried about getting in, in too, deep, too deep into the weeds and getting something wrong. So um, I, I, might, I might pass and say I've reached my depth at this point. Okay, I can. Well, let's just say hypothetically, David, if you were going to design a product which is essentially a mutual fund type of product that incorporates a longevity protection element into it, how what would it look like? 
I mean, obviously you'd have to have the vintages because you want to try to make sure that the mortality pool is relatively homogenous. Otherwise, there's going to be a big transfer among right. members of that pool. Well, then, I mean, then there's the risk of the intergenerational wealth transfer, right? If you if you get assumptions wrong early on for young people, then old people benefit and all that. But yeah, but, I mean, you you have to have you have to have some access, right? You have to have a market adjustment. You have to have some kind of return of premium provisions early. You ask, like, what happens if I die? I mean, in theory, you know, we should all just go out and buy immediate annuities with no return of premium or cash refund. But that's just not how things are. So I think you've got to kind of check a variety of boxes to get folks interested in it that aren't necessarily income maximizing, but it maximizes the pool of folks that are actually willing to buy it, right? So, so maybe I'll, I'll break down kind of the product because I've done some deep dives over it last week. Um, the, this particular product tries to invest in a traditional pool. The portfolio doesn't change. You have different vintages and those vintages spit out different income. Right? right, so different amounts of distribution on a yearly basis. So you don't get to choose your vintage. There, whatever your age bracket is, you get that class of fund. You can also uh, buy it before de the decumulation phase. So you can buy it right. in the accumulation phase. The accumulation phase, you get to grow it with everybody else, and you always are able to withdraw your money at NAV. After sixty-five, you get to withdraw with the lesser of um, the the money you put in minus your distributions or the NAV, right? So the lesser of, of either. So what that means is that you're, you're basically, if, if, you, if your portfolio, if you're an NAV, accumulates a ton of excess returns outside of what you put in minus your distribution, when you die, uh, if there's any left out that's not profit, uh, you can, your family can get it, but the profit mm -hmm. stays within the fund, right? So the rest of the participants benefit from any profit that your portion created. Uh, if you run, if, if your distributions are lower than what you put in, you'll still get the income for life and benefit from that pooling of longevity that, you know, they are, they're hoping grows over time. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and when you, when you, if you have used all that up, then there's nothing for your family. There's nothing left for your family. So the only liquidity, you can get the liquidity whenever you want, but it's as long as there's anything left from your original distribution. So that's, that's the structure as I understand it. Um, and you, you had said on Twitter that this is optimal. And I'm just curious, given the discussion well, That was Michael. That was Michael. Well, that was Michael. Yeah, yeah, but but essentially, Rodrigo, what you're I'm, describing. I'm now confused because I'm like, man, like what you described earlier was, seems more optimal than this. Um, you know, what do you this, mean? essentially what you're describing is a CDA. So it is that your buying longevity protection from an investment portfolio. Um, you, you have that portfolio, you're, you're spending it down every year, and then a portion of it is going to buy the longevity protection. So it is like a guaranteed lifetime withdrawal benefit that exists today. And, you know, and David's nodding his head because what you're describing is exactly that type of a product. And, you know, it's, it's also important to remember that these types of products have actually existed on wide scale in retirement plans um, for over 10 years now. So for example, UTC incorporated one of these types of products into now Raytheon into their retirement system. And they had a lot of really smart people trying to figure out what an optimal design was. And they, they actually settled on this as being pretty close to an optimal design that you're investing in a portfolio. You have a certain amount that's withdrawn every year to cover the longevity protection. You maintain that liquidity over time is the difference between, you know, that essentially it is that that difference between. But explain, David, how 
one of these products works and why it is so similar to what Rodrigo just described? Because I, well, I don't want to get stumbled. It's, it's, I mean, you, I mean, you know, you have, you have access to some pool of money, right? If, if the money that you're investing in goes to zero, someone else comes and cuts you a check, right? There, I mean, there are, yeah, there, there's differences between a GLWB and, and, and the, the purpose fund, but like conceptually it's this, it's idea of, you know, it's, it's, it's a portfolio. There's some liquidity. If you die, someone else keeps giving you payments as long as you're alive. Now, there's obvious important structural differences, like with the GLWB, your your, your income can't go down. It's you know managed by an insurance company. But collectively, you know, I view these as kind of like a, a liquid way to get guaranteed income for life, which really is different than like the research for the last you know going back way back that really focused on full and permanent annuitization. But it's not guaranteed income for life, right? It's only guaranteed income so long as the returns in the portfolio sustain um, income. Well, like it, there's, you're guaranteed some income, presumably, unless the, the markets go to zero. But obviously, right. you're, you're, you're subject to whatever the actuarially um, uh, forecast change in NAV is at each reevaluation period, right? So you, you could be in a situation market returns are substantially lower than expected, where your income is substantially lower than expected, right? Because of this market risk. What you're doing though, is instead of each individual needing to plan to a 95 year mortality, you are planning to the median mortality of the pool, right? So, so you're, you're maintaining the same sort of investment risk, but you are minimizing the longevity risk or the mortality risk, right? And so everybody, everybody comes out ahead why is this not more widespread? Like, why is there such resistance to, I mean, for, I've long said this is, and I know you guys said the same, this is demonstrably the optimal route for the population. And yet 50, 60 years ago, we migrated from a pension, like a a, a, a pooled pension structure for retirement to an individual retirement, private retirement structure I mean, that is demonstrably suboptimal for everybody, right? So why why are we here where everyone having a private pension plan seems like the, the preferred route when in reality, from a um, utility standpoint, pooling your uh, mortality risk is demonstrably the optimal route? Like, so, so just to be clear, Adam, are you talking about like from defined benefit to defined contribution to IRAs? It doesn't. the The common thread here is the pooling of longevity risk, right? Never mind, sort of the underlying. I mean, with it with a traditional annuity, you're you're making sacrifices in terms of what you can what you can own. You're essentially buying like a tips ladder, and then benefiting from the um, the mortality pooling. But with this tontine structure, you've, you're able to sort of, in theory, I mean, if there was a wide variety of these. What you'd have is a number of different types of portfolios, and but but all of them would be pooled, so you're pooling the longevity risk while uh, while being able to maintain some independence or some sovereignty in the type of portfolio you want to own, right? So you can have your own capital market expectations, you can have your own risk tolerance in terms of your your portfolio risk, etc. But but over top of it, we're pooling mortality slash longevity risk. So why is that this not 
the most popular way to manage retirement and how do we get there? Uh, I think David and I have the same answer to this. Uh, and that is that, I mean, we, we've not actually devoted any real effort to making a post-retirement re, post default that is efficient. So we have created these defaults structures, these target date funds that are relatively simple in structure. And then at retirement, we just, and especially if people stay in plan, which is probably better for them in many cases for the average worker to stay in plan because these things are so cheap, but there is no default into something that's more efficient. So people end up with this portfolio and they have no idea what to do with it. So there really needs to be a whole rethink of how those default looks, those defaults look after retirement and they need to start incorporating longevity protection as a default. If that happens, people are going to like the idea that they can spend their money and they can get guidance about how much they can spend every year and know that they have a guarantee that they're not going to run out. Everybody's going to be happier with that, but they don't get that. First of all, they don't get defaulted into that. Second of all, they don't get presented with that option. And I think it is a complex concept and there are a lot of behavioral barriers to this idea. Um, so people will, will struggle with it. And I think frankly, the industry has perhaps abused some of the elements of these products and they have not, you know, this, the, the whole steak dinner example is they've taken a structure which is optimal, which I, I would probably say, you know, somewhere between half and the majority of Americans should be rolling a portion of their savings into an insurance type of structure. But instead, they focused on capturing, you know, less than 1% of the rollover market um, instead of, I think, having the discipline to create more opaque products where it's easier for consumers and plan sponsors to compare one product to the other, um, making sure that they're incorporated into defaults. You know, I think that's where the effort really should have been. But the consequence is that people are actually not living as well as they could because they are not being defaulted into something that is more efficient. So is the Australian superannuation structure something to to, to kind of mimic? I don't know if Australia does this, but I, I'm from Peru, and I know that the superannuation concept is one where you have five providers that are all managing money professionally. You get to choose between three levels of risk. And when you die, when you die, when you retire, kind of the same thing. When you retire, um, you are then given a choice as to how you want to. You get you get the benefit of the taunting structure, and you get to to withdraw. You know, depending depending on which one of the three you choose. So, I don't know if Australia does that part. They don't. You know, at least that last time I was there, they they don't. In fact, it's kind of ironic that the annuity industry in Australia was actually less advanced than it is in the United States, given the fact that they call it a superannuation fund. There's right. there's no superannuation. There's no there's no mortality pooling. Fund. Yeah. So, so what I, are the I think behavioral you know, drawbacks from people wanting to adopt this. Pardon me. What are the behavioral? Uh, you, you mentioned that there's a behavioral barrier adopting this. What what are they? Do you well, have I mean, insurance? I mean, it, first sorry, of I missed, all, I missed the question. Do you like buying insurance? Is insurance a fund? No, but it's like, not insurance, right? Like that's what I think what's interesting about this purpose vehicle is that it's not insurance. There's no insured. Like there's no creditor there. If the, if the fund runs out because of bad investment performance, everybody suffers from that. The only risk you're upsetting 
is the mortality risk. You've still got all the investment risk, right? So this is why I say like this structure preserves individual agency in terms of what you want to invest in to a, to a limited degree. I mean, obviously this is one fund, right? But you could imagine an industry built around where every ETF or every mutual fund has a class, which is a, which is a, a pooled class, yeah. right? Like a mortality pooled class. And if you, know, you, you like this investment strategy, great. You could buy it without the pooled mortality or you can buy it with the pooled mortality. The pooled mortality is in almost every case more optimal than the unpooled, right? But we don't see this. Well, I mean, so I would argue that, you know, it is a it is a type of insurance, right? So there's on the spectrum of, of, of guarantee income for life. I mean, we can go back to old school SPIA, like that's like the tried and true. You're getting money as long as you live. There, there is a different kind of guarantee here, which is we, we will pay you as long as the pool can can persist in your payment. Right. So like th- that is Who's a, we Who's we? it's the it's the participants the paying themselves. There's no, 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 it's the, it's, I think anyways, it's the participants paying themselves. There's no guarantee from the fund company, right? Like the, with an annuity. It could go to zero. So, but that's part of the problem. It could go to zero. There's, there's more, there's, there's more of an assurance there with mortality than if you do it yourself, but that's the idea of the spectrum, right? So like in theory, like the strongest guarantees cost the most, this is a, a, to some extent, a weaker guarantee. So it costs less. But it's still a mild form of insurance versus the pure self-insurance of doing it by yourself in an IRA. And there has to be a cost. There. The notion that like, there's no cost to do this is, is not correct. It's just a lot smaller than kind of that, that full-on, full guarantee. Of, Hold on. What is, what is the cost? What is the excess cost? Well, you, you have to. I mean, like, by definition, you're giving up something to get access to the mortality credits. Right? I mean, like, insurance charge you explicitly. Like, they charge you, you know, like... You know, they charge you 100 basis points, 50 basis points. The, the, the cost of the insurance declines based upon the provisions of the contract, right? You know, how risky it is, what are the payouts, how does it change? But I mean, like, if I recall correctly within this vehicle, you know, like you, you have limited access to monies beyond what you contributed, correct? Okay, so yeah, so there's costs in terms of constraints. Absolutely, right. that's, yes. That's a cost. Yeah. I mean, like, it, yeah. it, isn't, yeah. it isn't free. So again, yeah. like my earlier question, it's a form of insurance. Insurance costs money. Now, again, the type of ins- the insurance costs different sums based upon the guarantees. But I think in the past we've had mostly products that have very expensive premiums, right? So again, you know, I would argue that a SPIA is incredibly expensive. You want me to give up my money irrevocably? That's nuts, right? I think what we're evolving towards now is more of these products that do have a more palatable type of of cost to them that should, in theory, get more interest from the retail public and from advisors. I mean, this is an example of a, of a new product that doesn't exist in the U.S. at all today, right? I'd like to, I'd like to think that we're going to see this product and variations of that, you know, where you do have, you know, structures that exist on top of advisor portfolios that are low cost, really available in the U.S. market. But we just haven't seen that. I think to Michael's point earlier, a lot of the products we've had historically have been steak dinner annuities that aren't necessarily low cost or attractive for the mass market to, to use or introduce. Well, that's Does an interesting TIA- point, actually. The fact that the, the, seeing the fee of, let's say, you invest in the in the taunting product that uh, Purpose has, if you double your money within five years, whatever you made is not yours. You can't leave it for your family. You can't withdraw it. It is it is it is a fee that goes directly to every unit holder. Well, hold on, that that's may not, increase. That's it may not right. increase a bit of your income. 
right? It right. Will it's not you your don't have access. And you can save you don't have the flexibility excess. to take. Yeah, but when you die, you don't get to get to give that. No, to but your, you could save the excess. So whatever you save in the excess, you are investing outside the pool, and that gets left as a. Um, but there's still a you know, fee. Down like if, your, if you double your money in five years, you have to like. I'm sure you don't get that back in in the next five years. You, you that is averaged out for the next whatever, whenever the longevity yeah, yeah. is expected to be. So it's for sure. There is still, still a benefit. tax. There's a tax to your to your estate. There's a tax to your ability to withdraw. Right. So it's it, seeing it as a fee is an interesting thing. That's all I'm saying. There's no such thing as free cake. <laughs> back to it. Yeah. No. For sure. And I mean, even you know, even with the mortality pool, you still have longevity risk because if the if the average person in the pool right. lives substantially beyond the actuarially modeled right. mortality, then so then you've got the option, you know, you'd have products that, that would would pool the mortality risk and buy a longevity swap for some portion of the longevity risk. Right. So there's a number of different ways that you could structure these. But the, the, the common thread here is and I th- tell me if I'm wrong. But I think it is always and everywhere uh, to, to spread the mortality risk relative to having to self-insure longevity. So I would, I would, I would only just – so I, you're generally correct, right, population-wise. But, like, if you're massively overfunded, right, you know, you don't always need to insure. Right. You need to ensure when there's risk that you could actually a bad thing happening. If you if you're worth a billion dollars. Fair enough. Fair enough. Year, you don't have to yep. do it. And again, that's not the vast majority of Americans. But then again, so back to the fee, you know, like maybe they're going to get like the lowest fee. We're using fee in, in air quotes here type policy, but they don't need a strong. I would argue that individuals that have have the least guaranteed income, the most uncovered need need the strongest form of guarantee. So if you don't have, yes. you know, if, if you don't have a lot of, you know, was that? Yeah, no, I mean, I, this, we keep, I feel like we keep conflating this thing because for me, there's no guarantee. The guarantee is a different thing. The guarantee is an insurance product, right? Mm-hmm. The Tontine has no guarantee, right? There is a pool of assets and at each, at each increment, an actuary describes what, the, what actuarially the pool can distribute, right? But it, the pool, the value of the pool goes up and down as a function of both what happens in the investment portfolio and what happens to um, the population of investors, right? If more people die or less people die than expected, right? But there's no guarantee or, or rather I'm not seeing what you mean by guarantee here. So, so I mean, so I guess I'm using the, the word guarantee loosely in that I, the guarantee is if your portfolio went to zero, you'd be broke. But if, if you can still get money as long as there's money in the pool. And so I think that, you know, like, like, I'm actually working on a group right now. We're going to use, I think you need to use a different word to describe these generally than a, than a guarantee. It's a type of guarantee, right? An immediate variable annuity has, is guaranteed, but the income can change dramatically based upon the portfolio performance, right? And so to me, the idea here is that there is some component where you will get income for life, but the big question is, right, is what is that income going to be based upon market returns, mortality experience, whatever else? Right. Michael, Michael, you've been been silent for too long. You know, it's semantics, honestly. It's it's about whether the insurance company is managing the excess money that you're essentially paying in terms of premium. So money is, is flowing out of the pool. 
it's getting managed by someone for the purpose of providing longevity protection if people run out of their own savings. And whether it's managed by the insurance company or whether it's managed by an investment company, it is the same thing. So it's this excess money that's being put in an investment account that's being used to ensure that people have lifetime income. Um, you know, someone has to figure out how much people can withdraw from the investment pool every year. So you need actuaries to figure that part out. Well, that makes it like an insurance company. It's You have to incorporate insurance thinking into investment products to get there. And the amount of expense and the amount of fees is really just a function of what you impose on that product. It's not a function of whether it is within the investment world or the insurance world. So you know, even with a traditional variable annuity type product that allows a certain amount of liquidity, you're ultimately, it ultimately is the same thing. Uh, you're paying a certain amount of your portfolio that is being used to provide protection if people run out of money in that investment account. And the amount of money that's being withdrawn in, in the form of expenses is really, that's, that's, that's part of the management fee or the efficiency of whoever is managing this scheme. But an insurance company can manage it efficiently or an investment company could manage it efficiently. I think ideally what will happen is we will get to a point where they are participating to the extent that there is very little institutional risk. This becomes very important in the defined contribution space because when insurance companies are providing these longevity guarantees, that will then fail at the same time because either there's a big increase in longevity beyond what was expected or asset returns or you know bond rates are not going to be what was anticipated something has to happen that blows it up if it's participating it never blows up but that also means that if it's participating then the individual bears more of that income risk and the institution is bearing that risk now so you know right. when they're selling you an income annuity right now let's get back to spias because spias are shockingly efficient so we should start from that baseline. Any type of a variable product, including tontines, is inferior to a SPIA if you don't get an equity risk premium. So it is the equity risk Agreed. premium that drives any higher income, any better lifestyle that you could get. Now, if you're just focusing on the bond portion of the investment portfolio and you've got that SPIA, it's going to provide a higher income for you every year and there's no mm -hmm. variability. So yep. if you end up, if everybody ends up living a long time, the insurance company is bearing that risk. It is not participating. So in that sense, you're getting something that you would not get through a tontine type of structure. That's an advantage of an insurance type of structure. Well, that's true, but you're paying for that too. I mean, whatever you're you paying are. is the net, the net between whatever the expected credit premium that the insurance company is expecting versus whatever they need to insure on the longevity side, right? So there's there's a there's a and there's a margin embedded in that. But no, as I said that earlier, load, that's, that load is so small, thin. Adam. It's yeah, just it's, very it's, it's freaking us out a little bit actually. It's yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But so, look like, at the to your point. Like those are great because they're so easy to compare, right? I mean like like wow, you just compare the yield on a SPIA. Everything else is 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 kind of a hot mess, right? I mean like, you know, the, I think there will be others and it's gonna be good. But I, I think SPIAs are, are so great because they're, they are so competitive. They're so easy, but no one buys them, right? Like they are just not a popular product at all. So, so I guess one key issue behind a purpose style product is that you, you require an equity risk premium to, to, to give you that access return for you to participate and do better than a SPIA. 
Uh, if you have a negative risk premium, like let's say we have a uh, 1930-style 85% drawdown, there's two things that are going to happen. You're going to have a massive reduction in your own app, but you're going to have a mass exodus of those people that just invested in the fund and said, this fund is terrible manager. And all of a sudden, that, that pooling goes right away. So you're, you're having, there's a behavioral risk that you're taking, the pooled participants, and the, the, uh, a negative equity risk premium that you're taking as well. Something no, I, think about. I, I think that's like, and so like, I think that's the issue with this pool, right? Like, what if you only have people that get it? What if you have a smaller product with, in, you know, only like mm. the like the the hundred healthiest people in Canada buy it? Right. Yep. It, unlike Raytheon, you mentioned Raytheon earlier, right? That probably has a, a broad distribution of uh, mortality, and right. they manage it. thousands you know, of participants. Yeah. People can opt out if you're part of that uh, company. So it just that seems perfect for them. This seems a bit more risky. If they don't, if they don't do a good job, so you know, purpose has a good job of raising a lot of cash, convincing a lot of people, so they might be able to pull it off. Well, that's a that's a very fair point. I want to um, I want to make sure, and I've already kept you longer than an hour and a half, so I'm, I apologize if you guys are are starting to feel tired. Um, I did want to close off though with a discussion of whether you have been been considering how investors who don't want to go the SPIA route. Um, or the insurance route in general can make up the difference between current capital market expectations for kind of plain vanilla balance portfolios, for example, um, and the required returns that are needed in order to support even moderate um, lifestyles in retirement. Have you been sort of branching out into the alternative investment opportunities at all and thinking about what might be be possible here? I mean, I, you know, I, I mean, a little bit, but I mean, a really important note is that like, like risk on or risk off or, you know, even alpha, it, it doesn't doesn't actually move the needle a whole lot in these projections. I mean, what really matters is how much you spend when you retire, how long things last. So I'm, I'm not suggesting that individuals don't do everything that they can to improve portfolio efficiency, but that's kind of like, a, a third order effect. So I think I think that that yes, it's obviously worth considering different types of investments. I don't know that I'm 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 hugely keen on alts, but I I always just kind of make the note that that that's not going to be the big difference maker in the outcome of a financial plan. So hold on, let me let me poke at that. David, so David, David, David. If you've got if you've got a let's let's assume like a, a whatever three or four percent withdrawal rate. Um, mm-hmm. And the capital market expectations on the underlying portfolio are 5%. Mm-hmm. And now you go from a 5% expected return to a 6% expected return. How? Right? So that's one scenario. Hold but on. How? Oh, that's cool. How is a good question. Alternatively, right, you go from a 4% withdrawal rate to a 3% withdrawal rate. Are you suggesting that going from a 4% to a 3% withdrawal rate is an order different in terms of its effect than going yes. from a 4% to a 5% expected return? Yes. Really? Oh, yeah. So I, I want to get back to this, Adam, because I, I think what you're saying I have heard in the past, and that is that if you can generate alpha in the portfolio, of course, you can pull out more money every year. 
And a lot of people have, you know, I, I, I saw this maybe like, you know, 10 years ago, there were all these studies like, well, you wouldn't invest in a 50-50 portfolio. You would, of course, lean small cap value because small cap value has outperformed historically. Why wouldn't you just pick that money up off the street if it's free? Well, the, the thing is, it's not free. It's a risk factor. It's a priced risk factor. And it just happened to not work out over the last decade. We've seen that risk materialize over the last decade. For some so, you know, it's it's the, the problem is that there is a difference between an, a risk factor for which you should generate an excess return, like beta, like something that has historically generated alpha. Now, that's different for tax alpha. Because tax alpha is, in a, in a sense, although tax rates are variable, they are stochastic themselves, you can generate a true riskless alpha. I mean, it is an arbitrage strategy, for example, to take money out of the right accounts in order in order to generate more income in retirement. Not riskless, technically. It's, it's not riskless because okay. you don't know. You don't, you don't yes. know volatility I, I just want to make sure I'm following here. So. Is on your assumption the one percent lower withdrawal rate and the one percent higher rate of return? What assumptions are you making that I'm not following? Is it is like in in a in a linear world mathematically one percent down safe withdrawal one percent up um, a return with no excess risk taken? You're telling me that the safe withdrawal rate uh, reduction does a better job at maintaining the pool? Yes. So here's, here's why I'm pushing back, though, because like Roy's safety first metric ends up being a really good proxy to, to sort of estimate the optimal retirement portfolio. And Roy's safety first is just the expected return minus the required return divided by the standard deviation, as we all know, right? But adding 1% to the expected return and lowering... 1% from the required return ends up being exactly this having exactly the same effect in the numerator. So I I would expect that they would have exactly like basically an equivalent impact on the utility of the retirement solution. So I mean you know you've probably seen research that Michael and I have done looking at at what do today's returns mean for safe withdrawal rates? Okay, and, and that's where people have said, oh, three is the new four, okay? The change in the return assumptions in that research is three to 5% lower than the historical long-term average, right? So to get to this new lower rate, it isn't like we're, ah, oh, well, you know, you're taking bonds from five to four. You're going from like five to two or one and a half. And that mm-hmm. gets you from four to three. So that's an example of research that has directly explored this effect. But you're changing not just those expectations. You're also changing the objective function, right? Like you're moving yeah. from no. a, okay, so no. you're, you're not going from like um, no. maximizing, from, from probability success to maximizing utility? No. We literally recreated the study and just change the returns. Okay. So, so what is I the would, break even? How many more units of return would you need to equate to a 1% reduction in safe withdrawal rate? So it, it, it varies, right? Depending upon your base expected return, your withdrawal rate, your time horizon, everything else. 
right? So it's not, I mean, it, it might be quasi linear. I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I mean, you know, I've done a lot of studies looking at, you know, like, well, you know, I mean, the, 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 the 1% is also to be clear, it's a withdrawal amount on a portfolio that is then increased for inflation. The return is attached to the assets, right? So those are act, it's two different things to begin with. And the effect of that varies based upon all the other parts of the assumption, but it's not, it's not one for one. The withdrawal rate is, is of higher magnitude importance than the return. Now, again, Michael, so like you can get some alpha, go get some alpha, right? But it, it's not like you can offset, oh, I can, you know, 1% higher return means you're good. We've seen that, you know, that's unequivocal in the stuff we've done looking at just using better current market assumptions. Well, one, one missing link here, which I think may actually close the loop is, um, Traditionally, when you're adding returns, you're also adding risk, right? So if you're adding returns and you're, and you're adding, so if, you're, if the Roy's safety first ratio is staying the same, because as you add, as you increase expected return, your denominator is increasing commensurately, then yeah, I can, I can totally see how the, there, there would not be much of an impact to increasing returns if you're also increasing risk commensurately. And then really the only thing that's going to matter is, or to a, to a certainly a higher order would be changes in your expected withdrawal rates. So we, we, we actually held risk effectively constant. It wasn't, it wasn't a risk deviation at all. It's just simply, I mean, it's just acknowledging that, you know, I mean, I don't know that 10 year bonds are riskier today than they were 30 years ago. We just we just assume that we know that the yields right now are lower, so retirees should assume a lower starting place for what they can get at least right now. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. I'll have send to me go. that uh, send me that paper. We'd love to read it, yeah, or maybe yeah, for sure. you know, tell me the name and I'll Google it. <laughs> I know that I know. And Michael then we'll bring you back on. We'll bring you back on to dissect it word by word. Yeah, we actually had I think three or four papers in 2013 all on this topic. Yeah, different ways you can run the models with. Yep. Auto regressive models and da, 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 you know it all rhymed. You need to take out less from portfolio when the interest rates are lower. Yeah, cool. no, f- f- fair enough. Well, listen, you guys have been incredibly, um, you know, brought a lot of energy to this, and and I appreciate you sticking around for almost two hours. So this is great, and um, I mean, obviously, we covered a lot of ground, and um, I think this ended up being a really fruitful conversation. So thanks so much. The new retirement planning is, is so enjoyable. Look at Exciting, us. Exciting, right? We, we can barely is. hang up. I could go yeah, on yeah. for hours. It's the last for Mike. <laughs> yeah, Mike's like just getting over some sickness and he's still going. Look at you. Sprightly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right. I'm going to crash now. <laughs> well, thanks, go Joe. grab a drink. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All right. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.